If you guys would stand for the reading of God's word, we're reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. <clears throat> now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dr. Klein, bring the book. Thank you, Trevor, for filling in for Les Keys this morning. Um, Trevor will head back to seminary again this week in North Carolina. Trevor wants you to know we do pray for you regularly, and uh, may these be great, fruitful days of growth in grace. What you're going to learn in the textbook is going to be matched by the circumstances and issues that God brings into your life. So we learn to practice those things. I know I look back from my years in, in seminary, I'm so thankful. I didn't always appreciate the uh, instruction in God's Word at the time, doing a lot of papers, but uh, it, has, it has borne fruit, and I am greatly thankful. Uh, also, Thanks to Joshua Spain uh, this morning. He came over and met me here at 1 o'clock uh, yesterday afternoon. Dylan and Lizzie are in North Carolina, and with the Nelson's quarantine, we had nobody who knew how to do the online this morning. And so he came over, and I'm starting to take notes, and I just gave up. I go, it's on you. I, I have no clue what this OBS system is and everything, how you put all that uh, together. So thanks to him. Uh, we will keep you updated. Just watch uh, the website, assuming that uh, we don't have, a, we'll let you know if there's a risk of uh, more COVID infections in our family and let you determine, church family, and let you determine whether you want to watch online or uh, stay home. And uh, we recognize many of you have chosen this morning to stay home and to watch online. So this is one of the rare chances I get to do this. Greetings to the frozen chosen. <laughs> this is actually my kind of weather, so... Um, although I am glad we don't have the ice and uh, the snow and we still have utilities and heat and water uh, 
contrary to what happened uh, last year. We are in a series. We finished the solas, the five solas, and the last one was soli deo gloria, that Latin phrase that means to God alone be glory. And we're spending a few weeks looking at trying to put the rubber on the road. How do we glorify God in specifics? And so we'll do a few weeks of that, and in the meantime, I am working on the Gospel of Matthew, and when in a few weeks we will pick up and begin to walk through uh, the Gospel of Matthew from the beginning to the end. Let me lead us in prayer and express our dependence upon God to take his word and make it real in our lives. Lord God in heaven above, you've given us a book. You have given us the completed canon. And we are far too sluggish in the spiritual race. Other things consume our time, our energy, and the priority of the Word of God personally in our lives often gets left out. Prayer becomes only in an urgent crisis rather than a regular part of our lives, so forgive us. Renew within your people regularly a desire to read your Word, to believe it, to obey it, to pray your Word back to you, we don't want to just know facts. We don't want to just know doctrine. We want to know the reality of those truths in our lives. We want to know God. We want to worship you. We want to know the delight that there is in knowing the living God, trusting you beyond our circumstances that may tell us differently. So, Take the word of God, make it live in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. One further intro comment, some of you may have also seen what has happened up in uh, Canada. The legislature has passed that it is now a crime uh, to have conversion therapy. Now, that's a very large term as they have defined it, but it also includes um, telling someone the gospel, telling them that uh, LGBTQ is wrong, etc. It's a direct attack upon imago dei, the image of God in which we are uh, created. It passed in December without one dissenting vote in the Canadian legislature. So, it is now a crime for pastors there to speak against it with a five-year prison sentence holding over their heads. Five states uh, in our country are pushing the same thing. It is not a federal law. And so our conservative brethren in Canada have asked pastors here in the States to stand with them in solidarity. The law goes in effect on January 16th. 
And they have asked us who believe the same as they do that we will preach on it that day, what it means, imago dei, and how serious that is. And they sent out a declaration. I signed it. I told them they could publish my name, and that's what we will do on December, I mean on January 16th, um, to support our brethren that in Canada that more and more pressure is being brought to uh, abandon the scriptures and to follow uh, their own, our own uh, culture in that way. So we will talk about uh, what it means to glorify God in your body, in your body. You're not your own if you're a believer. You're bought with a price, and you're to glorify God in your body. And that means you have to think about what imago dei, the image of God, means. And we will do that. So this morning, we come to glorifying the true God of heaven, part two. Let me just reiterate to you the importance of the glory of God. Um, This is... uh, so important in scriptures. What is the glory of God? Well, when the expression refers to what God possesses in himself, and not the glory, the honor that we ought to give to him, but God's own glory, it means it's his revealed splendor, his greatness, his magnificence of God. It's his majesty on display. It is the song that... uh, Madeline played for us, talking about in creation. That is a display of the glory of God. But even more importantly, it is a display of the glory of God as he reveals himself in theophanies, ultimately in Jesus Christ, and ultimately at the cross. He is called the King of Glory, Psalm 24.8. Who is the King of Glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord Mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts. He's the king of glory. Acts 7.2. Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Remember, the God of glory called Abram and a polytheist at that time. 1 Corinthians 2.8, he's called the Lord of glory, (coughs) that none of the rulers of this age had understood. For if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Ephesians 1.17, in that great prayer that we will look at shortly, is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. And then when we go to the transfiguration where the glory that Christ had and it began to shine through that veiled glory, Peter's reflecting back and he calls him the majestic glory. Magnificent, majestic, sublime. So God reveals himself to us in majestic displays of the excellence of his character. And his majesty on display should evoke godly fear, worship, honor, and great delight in his created beings. 
but we have all sinned and continue to fall short of the glory of God. There, the glory of God is the, is the honor that we have a debt to pay him, to, to trust him, to worship him, to obey him that he deserves. So what does it mean to glorify God? Looking at some Old Testament expressions, the first one, the first verb, to, to glory, is that one that we already sang about this, this morning, Hallel, when we sing Hallelujah, what does that mean? This, this, is, this is, you could respond to this one. When we say hallelujah, what does that mean? We praise God, hallel. We, we praise him. We praise uh, the true God. So it is, that verb in particular is used in a particular stem that means to praise, exalt, know, to be of supreme importance, to know God and his perfections. It's used in Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. Sometimes uh, if you use uh, the authorized version, uh, the word there may be a little confusing. It says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Now, when I think of boasting, I'm usually thinking of arrogance and, and, and pride um, in, in oneself. But the word there is the same word, halal. It means you exalt. This is what's important. And so I like the translation that some have used. It is, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. In other words, this is not what's supreme important to me is my wisdom. And let that not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me that I am Yahweh, the covenantal God who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. You have to know God and know those perfections of him. The second one is the one that we have looked at, to give God glory. There's the, it's both in a noun and a verb, to, to put glory. Kavod means weight, literally, but it's used give God the weight, the glory that he deserves. And it's used as a verb. That's where we get the one to glorify, is to give God the weight, the supreme honor by believing and obeying him in all the aspects that we should. In the Psalms, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. So in that Hebrew parallelism, to glorify him is to fear the Lord, is to praise him, all you offspring of Jacob. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. So there are numerous ways in which we glorify God. Sometimes it's helpful to think about what the opposite of glorifying God God is, and that's to glorify ourselves. It doesn't always uh, come through um, clearly, but this very same verb, to glorify God, is one, instead of giving weight to God, I give weight to myself. It's used to Pharaoh that he made his heart heavy, weighty. There it means insensible, 
uh, heavy, weighty, uh, refusing to glorify God. Uh, he considered his heart to be most important. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six: He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. So what is your heart? It begins with your mind, and it goes to your will, which affects your emotions. So to trust in your own heart, it starts with the way you think. And unless I run Scripture through my mind and know what God has said, I will not think correctly, thus I won't respond and emote correctly. Just think of the examples, uh, not only Pharaoh, remember Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, uh, his sons Hophni and Phinehas, what were they? They were priests. What were they supposed to do? Offer the right sacrifices. And what did they do instead? Um, they're called uh, sons of Belial, sons of worthlessness, because they're blatant disobedience toward God. And Eli, um, when he heard what his sons were doing, even sleeping, and they, these were married men, if you look at the text correctly, and they're sleeping with other women at the tabernacle. They were committing adultery, and all that Eli had to say to them was, now, boys, you shouldn't do such a thing. But no one actually came and rebuked them, and it says, and the Lord was determined, therefore, to put them to death. And we know what happened. The ark of God was captured, and there's Eli, 99 years old. He's sitting on a bench, and he's waiting for news to come back from the battle with the Philistines to see what happened. And it came back, and it goes, the ark has been captured, and Eli and Phineas are now dead, and we know what happened to Eli. He fell over back off the bench, and he died. And remember Phineas's uh, wife? She's about ready to give birth, and she's, she's struggling in her labor, and the midwife says, you'll, you'll be okay. She says, no. And she named her son what? Ichabod. Ichabod. Kavod, no glory, the glory has departed, and then she died. I can't think of anything worse for a church or for a people of God that have over the door, Ikavod, Ichabod, the glory has departed. And the only way we're going to do that, we have to stay in the book, we have to know what God has said, and we have to believe it. Um, you think of Absalom in the same in the same way. So, Proverbs says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. A fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. And he who would trust in his own heart is a fool. So let's switch then to the New Testament. To glorify is related to a verb meaning to think. Dokeo, to glorify, is doxazo, means that that's, shows you how important it is. If you're going to glorify God, you have to think correctly. It's more than that. You, you're thinking, then you have to respond to it with your will. But if you do not think correctly about God and has he has revealed himself in the Scriptures, you cannot glorify God. You must think about him correctly. So to glorify God is to give God the weight, the supreme honor by believing and obeying him. Uh, remember 
Mark puts it this way when he summarizes the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. What did he, what did he preach? Repent and believe the gospel. So last week we stressed that the starting point to glorify God is to repent of our sin and to believe upon him. And then that is a lifelong process. Whenever sin comes into my life, I am now a child of God, but I still have the capacity to sin. And so I go to the Word of God. I see how match my life does not match up, and I ask God for forgiveness. And then I go to the Word of God to be strengthened so that I do not continue to grieve God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9.13, they will glorify God. How? First of all, for your obedience that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. In other words, confessing the gospel should result in obedience. That's what repentance is. We also have it in Titus 2.10, uh, a similar expression for glorifying God when uh, Paul is writing to Titus and he comes down to the end and he says, let everybody in that list in chapter 2 adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Well, how do you adorn a doctrine? You show by the reality of your life that it's beautiful. In other words, I got out of bed this morning. Uh, my hair was pretty disheveled, what's left of it. And um, um, it wasn't a pretty picture in the mirror. And so I went in, took a shower. I adorned myself with some clothing. When we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, first of all, you have to know it. And then by living in concord, in agreement with that doctrine, you are pointing, God is a glorious God. He changes sinners. So people should see our good works and glorify our God in heaven. So... Negative example in the New Testament, remember Herod Agrippa? This is not Herod the Great, the great uh, builder, but this is his grandson. And uh, he was uh, not a person you would like ruling over you. And uh, he's, he said some negative things, and he got in trouble with the Emperor Tiberius. The Emperor Tiberius threw him in prison. Tiberius died, and so they let him go back, and they put him over... Uh, ruling over Palestine from 37 to 44. And remember what he did? He started uh, persecuting and executing Christians to curry favor with the Jewish people. And he was egotistical and, and self-inflated. And so one day on the appointed day, remember what he did? He put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the Bema, that's the judgment seat where he'd make decisions, and he delivered an oration to them. It probably was, was a lousy oration, but people were saying, oh, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. How many of us would still be here if every time we didn't give God glory that that uh, happened to us. So thank you for your mercy and your grace uh, upon us, Lord. Keep us from being like that. And eventually, it may not 
die like that. But if you die apart from Jesus Christ, there is eternal punishment on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, trying to put it in clarity, what does it mean to glorify God? You know, John Piper, if you've listened to him or read his books, this is what he has made. Basically, read all his books and condense it down. Here's what he says. God is most glorified when we have the most delight in him. Can I say that again? God is most glorified when we have the most delight in him. Because if I delight in God, I don't delight in sin. I delight in the things that he has delighted in. So Piper writes, glorifying means feeling and thinking and acting in ways that reflect his greatness, to make much of God, that give evidence of the supreme greatness of all his attributes and the all-satisfying beauty of his manifold perfections. I would add, to glorify God is to respond to God's majestic revelation of himself with my whole heart. You start this way. The mind must agree with God's truth. The will must respond in faith and obedience, and the emotions must be in alignment with scriptural parameters. You think correctly, you align your will correctly, and you emote correctly. Some say, well, I can't control my emotions. No. The Bible says that you can. In other words, when I am sinfully angry, I say, I can't help being sinfully angry. No, what you need to do is go back and ask why you began to think sinful anger and change your thinking so your will and emotions change. So the next couple of weeks, here's what I'm going to do. We're just going to do the first one this morning. There are four priorities in glorifying God. And first of all, it starts, it starts with each one of us on a personal level. It's not my brother nor my sister, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's an individual believer in personal worship, everything that I'm doing. I don't focus on other people, but I focus on myself. Am I glorifying God? Then I move out in my own family. Am I glorifying God in my family? And then I move out in a larger sphere to believers in the family of God. Are we glorifying God by our interactions with one another? And then I move out towards unbelievers. Am I glorifying God by the way I treat and what I proclaim to unbelievers. And some ask, well, which one of these is most important? <laughs> I respond this way. They're all important. They're equally important, but there is an order in which the, the order is crucial. In other words, if I'm not right in my personal life, then it's hypocrisy for me to come in and look good on the exterior without my heart being right. And if we're disunified as a church family, remember what they did in the first century? Behold how they love one another. So what, what I go tell somebody the gospel, and they go, oh, you go to Grace Bible Church. Yeah, we heard about you people. Um, behold how disunified and selfish you are. That's not going to attract anybody to Christ. So we're, we start with my own 
personal life. By believing on Christ, confessing, and repenting of sin. Where are the Beatitudes? What's the first Beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That word poor means bankrupt. In other words, I have no goodness of myself, but I look to him. Now, I want to start with talking about how does a believer mature in the faith in glorifying God? Once we have come to him, I recognize what God says about me, that by nature I am a sinner, I cannot save myself, I need the provision that only God can provide, and I look to the cross, I look to substitutionary atonement, then so how do I individually glorify God? And I'm going to submit to you the two main ways, and everything will flow out of this, is number one is the Holy Scripture. It's called the Word of His grace. Grace means I don't deserve it, but here it is. He's given us the Word of God. And secondly, prayer, the throne of His grace. I look at the, you know, uh, the research that, that uh, continues to come out where they survey people, and I submit to you, you know what they find? And I'm not surprised. The biggest lack today is that people don't read their Bibles. They don't see a need to read their Bibles. I mean, I go to church, I sing a few songs, um, and uh, go home, but I never open the book during the week. I don't read from it. And if you don't read from the book, then how are you going to grow in your understanding of grace and of God? Do you trust, I mean, we, we minister at the prison, and some get out, so they come up to you and say, hey, I just got out of prison. Do you trust them? I want to know something about that person before I trust him. So what is the basic sin in Genesis 3? It's called unbelief. They didn't believe God. They trusted their own minds. So if you're going to trust God and grow in faith, you have to know what he's like, and that comes from the Scriptures. So I want to go to the book of Ephesians, where we read this morning, but I'm going to start at the very uh, beginning with an overview for, for this person, for this, for this reason. There is an intentional pattern in the epistle to the Ephesians and the flow of the six chapters of this epistle. It's one of the prison epistles. Paul was under house arrest. The end of Acts, we're going to see a prayer that Paul prayed in prison, and we're going to see how a believer lives on the fullness of God. But first, we need to think about the flow of this epistle. It follows a particular plan, and it's easy to follow. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul is primarily instructing us in Christian doctrine. What are the blessings of God? And if you go to chapters 4, 5, and 6, and 1 through 3 aren't true of you, there's no way you're going you're to be able, you're going to be frustrated trying to do 4, 5, and 6. The reality of chapters 1, 2, and 3 has to be in your 
life. Chapter 1 through 3, what we must believe, 4, 5, and 6, how we are to live. That is the Christian order. Normally, you have the indicative, the statements of truth, and then they're followed by the imperatives. You cannot skip doctrine and move yourselves into the camp of obedience. It cannot be sustained that way. Right believing precedes right living. Truth studied, understood, applied, leads to obedience. Watch how this follows in the first three, three chapters. What does Paul do? Well, 1-3 all the way down through verse 14 is one long doxology instructing us why we ought to praise God and what he has done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings. He chose us for a purpose, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestines us for adoption as sons. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. In him, verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance. And verse 12, this is to be to the praise of his glory. And he caps that off with, in him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, again, to the praise of his glory. So what Paul is doing is teaching their applications and ramifications, but here's what God has done. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and the proper response is to praise his glory. Now, here's, here's the kicker. In our experience, I will include mine as well, most of us have experienced the sad reality that right doctrine does not always lead to right living. It's the starting point. You're not going to get to right living without right doctrine. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. And so I submit to you one of the reasons why and the, and the pattern that Paul has in here is there's another element in Ephesians, and it is God applying the truth to the life of the believer. Someone told me it takes about a seminary student about three years to warm up from the experience. I mean, I don't know if it took me that, that long or, or not to... Uh, um, I, I know one thing, my obedience and my trust, there's a gap between what I know theologically. And you know how God helps me with that? He'll bring along difficulties, circumstances in my life. I need to know those truths, and he'll bring along issues, difficulties in my life that I have to cry out and run, Lord, make these truths real in my life. And that's what Paul is going to do. So in 115, we have a prayer that runs all the way down through verse 23, and the issue is this. You have right teaching, but then Paul recognized right teaching is not enough. God has to take the Word of God through the Spirit of God and apply it to the believers. So watch what he prays. He taught them, and now he prays for them. 
For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't seek to give thanks for you. And here's what he prays, that the God of our Jesus the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Verse 18, since the eyes of your hearts have been enlightened, you got a new set of eyes that God has given to you, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now that knowing that he's praying for is not simply intellectual attainment of truths between the ears. He's praying that God, through his spirit, will enable them to know it experientially. And eventually, he prays for the power that we need in Christ. Now look at what happens again at the end of chapter 3. We go to chapter 2. Paul gives us a great deal of doctrine. Paul gives a parenthetical section where Paul explains his own part in the ministry. And at the end of the chapter, he returns to this issue of doctrine. And he prays again that God would again, by the Holy Spirit, strengthen the believers so that they might come to a real awareness of these truths in daily living. So the first prayer looks back over what he has just taught, and the second prayer right at the end of chapter 3, now he's looking forward to chapters 4, 5, and 6. He's going to tell us how to live based upon the truths of the Word of God. So, Lord, enable them to do what is commanded to do. So he returns to this issue of doctrine, and he prays again that God would again, by the Holy Spirit, strengthen the believers in living and knowing these truths. So truth acquired is to go from the mind to the will, and that requires divine enablement by the Spirit. We are uh, not starting this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, we're going to start a series on Wednesday night. Dylan will be back, and he will start teaching again for our, our youth on systematic uh, theology. At the same time, we will start uh, a series in here. It's by Dr. John Snyder and others, Behold Your God, The Majesty of God. It's been redone. I've been watching that taking a lot of notes. Um, the first 15 minutes are people from church history, and um, then how do they point us by their lives to the majesty of God? And the rest of the 45 minutes is given to the scriptures. And he made some helpful observations. I'm giving you a couple of them. This Paul, this prayer in at the end of chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, it's not a private prayer. It's in there for a reason. It's a prayer for all Christians. Why does God have Paul record this prayer so that for the last 2,000 years, every Christian can read it? 
The reason is this prayer is for all believers. The things that Paul pleads for regarding the Ephesian Christians are requests that we ought to plead for regarding our own souls. It's not limited to the first century. It's not limited to Ephesus. It's not limited to Paul. It's for all Christians in all times and all circumstances. So when I understand doctrine, what I should be doing is praying, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you. Take these truths and make them real in my life. Another issue as we approach this prayer, nothing that Paul prays for here is extra. Paul prays for these wonderful applications by the Spirit, but this is not icing on the cake. This is mandatory. It's the main meal. It's part of doctrine, then pray that God would work in our life. And think about the timing of Paul's prayer. Now, if someone writes you a letter while they're in an easy chair and comfortable setting with friends being bestowed with honor, then I'd read it in one way. But, but Paul has made certain boasts about Christ, who he is, and Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay, I may be able to say that in my easy chair or in my recliner when I need a power nap just before I sign off in the afternoon, but to do that in prison... Both Colossians and Ephesians written at the same time, he says, there is all the fullness of God in this man, Christ Jesus. And as the Son of God, he makes us full. So there was a fullness for Paul even in prison. So the reason Paul was filled with the fullness, it wasn't his devotional life, was because he belonged to the infinite Savior, understood the Word of God, prayed for others, but also applied that to his own life. So Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, the second prayer. You're getting the pattern here? Teaching, doctrine, pray. Teaching, doctrine, pray. So they're not optional. They're both necessary. And I have, to, I have to tell you, I spend more time studying than I do praying. And I've, I've said, Lord, help me to get a better balance on, his, on this, to pray not only for my own life, to, but to pray for the people of God. If I'm not dependent upon you when I stand to teach the Word of God, that's absolutely arrogance. So help me to be dependent upon you from the pulpit, and help me to be dependent upon you to have the Spirit of God work in the people of God. So, 3.14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to do what? To be strengthened, strengthened with power through what? His Spirit in your inner being. Paul cannot do that. Only the Spirit of God can do that. So that Christ may dwell, be at home in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is basically incomprehensible. And he comes back right to this, and to know the love of Christ. That knowing is not facts between the ears. You have to have the doctrine, but he wants them to know that 
in their experience. When we came to Christ, it was because we were given a new life, a new heart. And when we progress in our maturity, it's not because we become strong and self-sufficient. Christian growth is not up, but it's down. We're growing in humility. We're becoming aware of how needy we have always been and more aware of how sufficient Christ really is. I find out I am more needy than I ever imagined. And he is infinitely more powerful than I ever imagined. It's a life of ever-increasing dependence on an infinite Savior. We know the Holy Spirit must work. The Father has planned the great work of redemption. The Son has purchased our redemption by his life. And the Holy Spirit has been sent to apply that redemption to our lives. Now again, let me stress, doctrine is not an end in itself. It is a means to an end. You can't bypass the teaching of Scripture and go, just give me quick five how-tos and I don't have to know all that stuff and life is easy. No, God has given us his truths for a reason. I have to run them through my mind. I have to think upon them. And God will take his word and change us. But the goal is this. Um, some of you uh, may remember uh, Buzz Corey. I used to visit him when he was still in prison out at New Boston, and that's one that you can't get into real easily. Had to make an appointment with the warden every time I came, and so I, I was allowed two hours, and if I'm late to my time with him, they cut off, so they would assign me so much time, and I'd go in, and he doesn't, they don't tell him I'm coming, they go find him, whatever he's going to do, and he comes out, and there's a solid cinder block wall, and there's a little glass window, and he picks up the phone on one side, and I pick it up on the other. I don't know how many closing those iron, big metal doors I had to go through, and they assigned me a guard to sit with me all all the time. So the guard always got a good dose of the gospel as well during that two two hours. So I'm I'm uh sitting there and and uh Buzz wasn't allowed to have things but occasionally um how how did he grow? He he trusted Christ in prison and he didn't want to fight anymore. So what they do? They put him in solitary confinement to protect him. So they go get him, they bring him out to me I say, how are you doing? He goes, I'm doing really well. He says, they gave me a Bible. So what do you do in solitary confinement? I read it, I read it, and I pray. And his life took off spiritually. So he learned how to do leather work and with another guy. And they, if you see me carry that little New Testament, and it has a leather case on it. And it'll say, love from a pure heart. That's where I got it from. And he took 1 Timothy 1.5. Namely, the goal of divine instruction. The purpose of it is love. It's agape. But where does it come from? From a pure heart. What's a pure heart? It's a heart that thinks correctly, responds correctly, and emotes correctly. So it has to start with, 
with the mind and from a good conscience. How do you get a good conscience? What's your conscience? What's it do? More often than not, what does it do? It accuses or, or defends me. So often my conscience is accusing me, and I run to the Scripture, and I go, do I have a legalistic conscience, or is this actually correct? But it's the way you think, and from sincere faith. So there it is. How do you get love? Well, you have to think correctly about God. If you don't think correctly about Him, you're not going to have biblical love. So there it is, doctrine, what we must believe in 1 through 3, and duty, or the call of the church, the conduct of the church, and chapter 4 through 6, how we must live. So Paul gives us that crucial introduction in 4.1, I therefore, the therefore, what's it there for? It looks back at all the first three chapters. Prisoner for the Lord, exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, what is, what is walk? Why doesn't he say run? Why doesn't he say leap? <laughs> As my legs have gotten worse, I, I appreciate just the ability to walk. What do you do when you walk? You take one step at a time. So sometimes it's not all that exciting, but it's maintaining and learning a regular day-by-day plodding along learning to walk with God one step at a time. It's not, give me a big emotional thrust so I can get through the week. It's learning to walk one step at a time. And Paul takes that metaphor, and he develops six ways in which we're to walk in chapter 4, 1, all the way down through 6, 9. Walk in unity, walk in holiness, walk in love, walk in the light, walk in wisdom. And then finally, 6, 10 through 20, stand in warfare. Where does that flow from? It all flows out of the first three chapters of the epistle. This is how I taught you. This is what you should be praying. Now here's how you're to respond, enabled by the Spirit of God. So I just want to look at one of them in 417 through 32, because this one, walking in holiness, is going to express in particular how we do that. So, going back again to 417, the negative, don't walk as the Gentiles do. What's the first thing that he points out in the what of their minds? Futility, wrong thinking, emptiness. They got wrong thoughts. They're darkened in their what? In their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Their ignorance. They have hardness of heart. They become callous. But, verse 20, the positive, that's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming you have heard about him, you were taught in him. Now watch. There's three infinitives. You go, I don't want an English lesson, but... You'll be easy to pick these up from the text. They begin with the little word, T-O. Watch them in verse 22. Here's what you were taught. To put off your old self, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and 24, to put on 
the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, when I do, when I'm not obeying God, I can just go, all right, I'm going to stop doing it, and I'm going to do the right thing. Good intentions, but unless you're strengthened by God in his word, you're going to be frustrated. Because look at the middle one. You're to put off, yes, you're to stop doing certain things, but Christianity is never about merely what I don't do. What do you do that makes you a Christian, and how do you get to doing what you ought to do as a Christian? And that's the key. And the middle one, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds is a present infinitive. You need to go on mind renewal. So here it is. How do you walk in holiness? Stop sinful behavior, replace it with right behavior, and how do you get there? Re be renewed, engage in mind renewal. So what do I do when I have sin in my life? I not only confess it and ask God for forgiveness, but I grab out my concordance or go to the computer, pull one up, and I say, okay, here, here's, here's where I'm thinking wrongly. So I start memorizing texts of Scripture that deal with this issue. If I have a problem with lying, what do I do? There are tons of, of passages about telling the truth. So when you see that fleshed out in the, in the real examples, I always ask this question. When is a person no longer a liar? And often the answer is, when he stops lying. No. When is a person no longer a thief? And often the answer is, when he stops stealing. But look at the text. You put off, you have to replace that with the right behavior. So when is a person no longer a liar? When he begins to speak the truth. When is a person no longer a thief? It's wonderful. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You got a problem with your tongue, verse 29, then put, on, put off all those negatives and replace it with speech that ministers grace to those who hear. So the pattern was put off, engage in mind renewal, and to put on. And there's the specifics. I see I left out a colon. It's not examples 425 through 32. Um, so from there, let me just conclude with some thoughts about the intentional practice of mind renewal. If we're going to glorify God, it always has to start this way. You have to think rightly about him. But thinking rightly about him is also responds in obedience and faith and trust, and that is knowing God. So this, this is a trajectory that runs right through Scripture, Joshua 1, 8, and 9. This book of the law, Torah, divine revelation, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall what? Meditate on it. You know what meditate means? You engage the mind. You run it over, over and over, day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written. Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you'll have 
great success. Proverbs 4.23, one of the key ones, above all else, above everything else you do, a prime importance of everything that you guard, you're supposed to guard what? Your heart. Why? All the issues of life flow out of your heart, flow out of the way you think, and you respond with your will. So, Psalm 119, 9 through 11, how can a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed according to your word. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, your word I have treasured, I have stored up, I have hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against you. It has a preventative aspect as well. Second Timothy three fourteen through seventeen. Timothy from from a from a young Brephos, from from uh, infancy. You've known the holy scriptures, taught to him by his grandmother and his mother. What are they able to do? First of all, they make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then what do they do? All scriptures God breathed. What's it useful for? Teaching, rebuking correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God, the person of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You cannot be thoroughly equipped for every good work without the Scriptures. So I get up in the morning, I read my Bible, and then I go exercise. Sometimes if I'm a little late getting up, I may exercise physically and then come back and open the scriptures and read from them. But it has to be, I, I can't tell you how much to read for every day. I can't tell you, uh, if you go to Ligonier, you'll look on there. They do that every beginning of every year. They must have 25 Bible reading plans, um, often the one that Murray McShane followed. Let me tell you what the best Bible reading plan is. You know what it is? It's the one you use. <laughs> because if you're not using one, it's not going to do you any good. So give some time, whether you're doing it in the morning. And if I know I have a busy day coming up, and uh, I may read three days in advance. Talk to Paul. He'll tell you, um, what's that app called, Paul? Commuter the Commuter Bible. Look it up. Put it on there. you got to do a lot of driving. You, you, can, you can listen uh, to it. But you want a steady dose of God's Word in your mind. Because if you don't put it in your mind, you have culture that is being saturated that is anti-God. You want God's Word in your mind. Um, training, Psalm 1, 1, and 2. What do you have to do? You have to meditate on it day and night. Um, 1 Timothy 4.8, um, 4.7, have nothing to do with worldly fables. On the other hand, discipline, that is the word gumnazo, exercise yourself for the purpose of godliness. It's a present tense. How often do you exercise? Well, some of you go, which kind of exercise are you talking about? A lot of you get a whole lot of more exercise than I do. I go sit at a desk all day, pretty much. Occasionally I get up and 
make sure my legs are, are moving, so what do I do? I, it, it's important for me. Uh, I'm not trying to be Hercules. I just want the body to keep working to some extent. So for me, they said, if you don't want to be back in here for more surgery, quit lifting weights and quit doing those elliptical machines and swim. I said, okay, I, I, I can do that. Bodily exercise is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. So how do you get godliness? You engage in mind renewal. So let me ask you, did you read the Bible this week? And why did you read it? I'm not going to go here. It's, it's before you open your Bible, nine heart postures for approaching God's Word. We have these little books that we put on the book table. And you know what they found? People don't read book, big books anymore. So they started boiling them down to the essence and putting them over there. So maybe you, you read this, you have a desire for more, look at the footnotes and, and get the big ones. So what should be proper perspective when you approach the Word of God? Approach your Bible prayerfully, humbly, desperately, studiously, obediently, joyfully, expectantly, communally, Christocentrically. And you don't have to be a believer to read the Bible. People get converted just from reading the Bible. And then... Uh, let me give you some examples. I didn't put them on here. Um, positive examples. Joseph, why, why didn't he cave in? Day after day, Pharaoh's wife kept saying, come on, come lie with me. He says, Joseph was a good-looking young man. He was single. Why didn't he cave in? The text tells us, Joseph said, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? In other words, God was preeminent in his thinking. If God's not preeminent in your thinking, it's not going to stay there if you don't read the book and pray and ask God for a work of grace in your heart. How about the midwives in Exodus chapter 1? Remember, Pharaoh goes, hey, go out and kill all those children. It says the midwives, we even have their names, Shifra and Pua. They feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. Fearing God is also equal to glorifying God. David, I think, you know, we, we remember David's great sin of adultery and... Uh, planning of murder. For me, the highlight of thinking of David is in 1 Samuel 36. Remember, he's down there at Ziklag, and they came back, and all the uh, his family, his possessions, the women, the children had all been carried off, and David was greatly distressed. And then all his men spoke of stoning him. They were all bitter, and they turned against David. But David... 1 Samuel 36, strengthen himself in the Lord is God. Now, how did he do that? How did he strengthen himself in the Lord is God? I tell you, he had to think about God correctly and not let his circumstances dictate his view of God. How about, how about Daniel 1.8? Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies. Well, he had to know what was wrong. And then Ezra. Ezra had set his heart, prepared his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances 
in Israel. And finally, jumping down to Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I do pray for all of us that God would make us a people of the book and a people of prayer. They are not extraneous or something we can do without. They are, they are mandatory if we're going to glorify God and love him. So I admonish you, read, believe, and obey God's word through the power of his spirit. Your best plan for reading the scriptures is the one that you use. And pray God's word back to him and ask him to enable you to know, to experience him more fully, and to know the love of God that surpasses all comprehension. And if you're here this morning and you never have believed upon Christ, you need to turn from him while you have the opportunity. Today is a day of salvation, a time of salvation. Turn from yourself, turn from your sin, flee to Christ, ask him to save you and to rescue you. Believe upon what he has done at the cross and he will save you. Take his word for it. Jerry, lead us in singing. <laughs>